A very good morning to church. It is so wonderful that we can worship together on Father's Day and also the first uh, indoor uh, worship in this place. Uh, this is different. I, I hope you feel that. It is different. You can hear each other singing. You can see, well, partially, but you know, we can see each other uh, in person and we can see the church coming together as a community. And this is wonderful. Nothing can replace that. The online worship was not able to do that. The outdoor worship was not able to do that. But nothing can replace the indoor gathering of God's people together, of course, safely, and able to come together to bring glory and honor to God. Again, this is Father's Day, so special uh, greetings to all the fathers. God bless you. And uh, later on, Pastor Henley will pray for you, and the congregation will also bless all the fathers together. Uh, We just want to appreciate the reopening task force for working very hard to ensure that we are able to move forward with the reopening. Uh, We try to be as safe as we can, we try to be as obedient as we can uh, to God and also to the government. Uh, but I think this is a good time that we can come together and to glorify God uh, in this manner. Today, I want to uh, really take this opportunity uh, to invite you to read scriptures with me together. Because in the outdoor worship, you can hardly hear each other when we read scriptures together. You can hear from me through the amplification of the PA system. But when we read with cars uh, some inside the car, some outside the car, and with spacing in between every car, we can hardly hear each other, and we miss that. We miss the community. So today, I want to do it, make sure I do it, that we can read together and hear each other reading God's Word together. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 20 to 34. I'm going to invite you to stand together. Let us read God's word together. Uh, I will read from the ESV version. Uh, if you have the ESV version, we can read louder. Then we can, then we can be more synchronized. Uh, if you have other versions, please join along and read God's word together. And, and feel the corporate reading of scriptures. And feel the community. God's people responding to God's word. Submitting to God's teaching. And coming together and say, we will follow God. We will do God's will. Let's read together First. Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 34, together. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, will put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, 
or tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Lord, we open our hearts to you, and may your word minister individually according to our needs, and the Holy Spirit will convict us accordingly and help us to follow you and do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We started to focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which was a key issue in the church of in Corinth when they denied that the dead may rise again because Christ has risen ahead of us. In verses 1 to 11, we've gone through the historical argument showing that there are many witnesses who witnessed Jesus, uh, the risen Lord. And in verses 12 to 19, it gone through a logical argument, arguing that if there's no resurrection, then we'll be lying, then we'll be in vain, then we'll be deceiving ourselves. It doesn't make sense. And today, we want to touch on the theological arguments to show us that Christ's resurrection is a certain, and it will go beyond resurrection of our body, but it will go all the way to bring glory to God. And ultimately, it tells us how to live in the light of the resurrection of the Lord. Now, the first one we'll share with you is Jesus guarantees a bodily resurrection. Verse 20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, the Jews offer a sacrifice of first fruits following the Passover. That's the first offer. But 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, they will offer and present another offering of new grain also called the offering of first fruits. So the first fruit is offered to the Lord not only prior to the main harvest, but also was an assurance that the rest of the harvest was coming. And so with Christ. He preceded his people in his bodily resurrection, and he is also the guarantee of their resurrection at his second coming. See, Paul used the first fruits metaphor to exert that the resurrection of believers is absolutely inevitable. It will happen, and God himself will guarantee it to happen. Then in verses 21-22, Paul begins to point out the parallel between Adam's sin leading to the sinfulness of all humanity and parallel that with Christ's resurrection of believers is and Christ's resurrection leading to the resurrection of all his followers because Adam represented the entire human race that would descend from him so sin spread throughout the whole world but Christ as fully human he represented the entire human race in bearing its sins He's able to apply the benefits of his death and resurrection to all who will accept him. So the whole human race who are represented by Adam died when Adam died in sin. But those who are redeemed by Christ Jesus will be made alive at his resurrection. So Christ guarantees our bodily resurrection. And secondly, he moved to Verses 23-28, where God will reign supreme over all. It doesn't stop there. It just kicks into a motion of 
of different events, of a change of events that demonstrate the absolute sovereignty of God. If we have hope for resurrection, bodily resurrection only, then we are too limited, too narrow in our scope. It sets off events after events after events towards the glorification, but also towards the sovereignty of God that will be shown clearly. So look at verse 22. He says, but each in his order. Christ, the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Christ, the first fruit, was made alive three days after his death. And those who belong to Christ, you and me, will be made alive at his second coming. Then in verse 24 says, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, a kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. This is at the end of Christ's second coming. And after he has conquered every rule and every authority and every power, and he will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. Just like Romans chapter 8, 21 expresses that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And you and I experience that today as you look around, that our human society is inflicted with sin and plagues and conflicts and murders and many, many other, other plights. And the environment is piled with the problems of carbon emissions and global warmings and glacier melting and extreme weather patterns and many, many other issues. The human race and the nature, creation of God, we are all waiting to be freed from the bondage of sin and death, awaiting for the second coming of Christ to make right what has been wrong and continues to be wrong in our human life as we live in this world today. And verse 25 says, He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So at the end of His second coming, Christ will destroy all human and demonic oppositions to His reign in the universe. And finally, death will be destroyed so that God's people will never again have to fear anything in eternity. Verses 28, 27, 28 shows the supremacy of God the Father. It says, For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. And that's a quote from Psalms chapter 8, verse 6. And it says, when He says that all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. You know, if you continue to read down there, it's a little bit confusing. It is plain that God the Father is accepted. He is not included in the subjection under Jesus Christ. And when all things are subjected to him, to Christ, then Christ the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God the Father, he who put all things in subjection under Christ the Lord, Christ the Son of God, that God ultimately may be all in all. 
I know as you read through these short verses, it was kind of wordy and uh, it was a little bit confusing sometimes, but the whole idea is when all things are put under subjection by God the Father, God the Father will ultimately get, get the glory and He will reign above all. He will be supreme above all that God may be all in all. He will reign supreme in all. He will be, as one commentator says, He will be pervasively sovereign. There is no space. There is no places. There is no any uh, empty areas that we can find that God the Father is not reigning. He reigns supreme when Christ offered the kingdom to him. He voluntarily emptied himself, as in Philippians chapter 2, to exalt God the Father as the Godhead of the Trinity. And as we see the sequence of the resurrection and the coming of Christ, and how he conquered every rule and authority, and how he offered the kingdom to God the Father and gave glory to God the Father, I, I hope that you are longing for the sequential events that keep rolling as we await for the second coming of Christ. But in the meantime, how should we then live? We're still here. How should we then live? And that takes us to verses 29 to 34. We must live in the light of the resurrection. Now in verses 29 to 34, Paul gave three more arguments on if there is no resurrection, okay? The first is in verse 29. He said, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? If there is no resurrection, why are you doing this? But the practice in the church of Corinth was heretical. It was unbiblical. There are many, many views on what do you mean by baptizing on behalf of the dead? Uh, basically, most scholars will come to the agreement that it is some form of a proxy baptism for those who have already died without baptism or without salvation. So some of the Christians in the church in Corinth, they thought that by baptizing themselves on behalf of the deceased, they can transfer salvation to them. But again, I want to say that this is totally unbiblical. It, it is contradictory to the teaching of God's Word. Okay, let me get it right there. But when Paul picked up this practice, he was neither condoning it nor condemning it. The point is not to address that issue. The point is to use that practice to show the absurdity of baptizing for the dead when you do not even believe in the resurrection of the dead. The point is, if there is no bodily resurrection, why are you doing something for those who have died? <laughs> That there's nothing after death if you do not believe in the bodily resurrection. It is absolutely absurd. So if there's no resurrection, the heretical practice in the church in Corinth 
is absurd. Secondly, in verse 30 to 32, if there is no resurrection, the suffering for the gospel comes to nothing. He says, why are we in danger every hour? That's Paul saying. We the preachers, we the gospel carrier, messenger. Why are we in danger every hour facing hostility from others and persecution? Verse 31 says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Here, Paul is making an oath to prove that he was willing to die for the sake of the gospel every day. Then he says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? There is no record in the Bible of Paul fighting with beasts in the city of Ephesus. There's no, uh, the, the, the Roman citizen, uh, Paul, belongs to the Roman citizen. He is supposed to be exempted from such punishment to be a gladiator in the, uh, in the arena. And he would not have survived if he were ever put in there, in there and come back to tell us what happened, right? So Paul was not really referring to fighting a literal beast, but he was making a point, saying that when he was in Ephesus, his persecution was life-threatening, as if he was fighting with the beast. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, why suffer? suffer for nothing. If there is no bodily resurrection, there is no purpose in sacrifices for Jesus. Don't do that. And thirdly, he argued again, the third point is, all that is left is pleasure seeking. What else do you want? What else do you have? If the dead are not raised, in verse 32, the second part says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If there is no bodily resurrection, it makes sense to live for today and engage in sensual fulfillment because there is no tomorrow. There is no life after death. Just follow your impulses. Seek material and sensual fulfillments because there is nothing else to pursue in this life. So just be happy. Eat and drink whatever you want. You die, you die. That's it. But Christ has risen. The three arguments was showing the absurdity of not accepting the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. But Christ has risen and we shall rise again when we died because Christ is the first fruits who has died, risen, and then we who follow will be the harvest that come along in there. And with that background, finally, Paul gave some personal exhortations, which I believe is relevant to you and me today. Verses 32 and 34 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Three exhortations. One, do not be deceived. Why? Because bad company ruins good moral. Who are the bad companies that the Corinthians was associating with? Well, the bad companies 
with those who do not believe in the bodily resurrection. Paul says, don't go near them. Don't be a part of the party. Don't associate with them because that will ruin your moral life. Why so? Because when you belong to this group, you will fall into deception, wrong doctrines, and you will give in to fleshly desires because you do not believe in the resurrection. When you do not believe in the resurrection, then there is no consequences and there are no accountabilities and there is no higher authority. You are the master of your life. Do whatever you want. You can choose to live however you want it. So do not be deceived because bad company ruins good moral. And secondly, he says, be sober-minded. Verse 34 says, wake up from your drunken stupor. Wake up. Do not be intoxicated with wrong theology, wrong doctrines. Wake up to the truth of the resurrection of the dead. Then your right theology will produce right conducts and right practices. What you think, that's who you are. So make sure you have the right teaching, right doctrine, and your actions will follow suit. So do not be deceived and be sober-minded, but thirdly, stop living in sin. He gave a command that reminds them, do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Because of the wrong theology, the wrong teaching, the wrong understanding of God's word, they were denying the resurrection of the dead. The Corinthians have fallen into sexual immoralities. Some, incestuous relationship. Others, strive and rivalry. Still others, dining with the devil in the pagan temple. Paul is warning them to leave their sinful practices or else he gave them a strong warning, a command to stop. And he says, some have no knowledge of God, and when you do that, shame to you. He may be referring to some unchurched neighbors who saw their practices and was just bewildered. How could, how could a, a holy God produce such followers? Or he could be pointing to some Corinthians who do not understand the truth of God and say, shame to you. Grow up. Come back to the teaching of God's word and grow deep in Christ. And that's the message we have today. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our bodily resurrection, anticipates the exaltation of God the Father, and impacts our lives today. Yes, believing in the resurrection and believing that we who follow Jesus, when we die, we will rise again because of Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits of the whole procedure and the whole process. It impacts our lives today. You see, the most powerful testimony is not the empty tomb. Though empty tomb is very powerful to testify that Christ has risen and he is a living God. But there is something more powerful. The more powerful testimony is the life transformed by the risen Lord. Because 
the, re- the transformed life testifies to us that the living God lives in us. The living God shapes and molds you and me to be like Him. That's even more powerful. So today, on this Father's Day, I want to, based on Paul's exhortation to the church in Corinth, again, to also apply that to us who are fathers today. First, do not be deceived. I want to encourage you to develop a biblical worldview in a confusing world. Our world is becoming more and more confusing in moral principles, in black and white, in what is to do and what not to do, in right and wrong. Reading and studying are not always the forte of many fathers. We love to do things with our hands, but we need to be grounded in God's Word. The world needs discerning men to know what is right and wrong. Be a discerning man of God. Secondly, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. I want to encourage our fathers, including myself, to be strong enough to admit our mistakes and wake up from the drunken stupor as Paul exhorted the church in Corinth. Wake up. We might have been intoxicated by wrong passions, indoctrinated by wrong ideologies, or influenced by powerful voices that are taking us in a wrong path. Be strong enough to admit our mistakes and come back to God and do it God's way. And thirdly, stop living in sin. As Paul exhorted the Corinthians, the same exhortation comes to you and me as fathers today, of course to everybody, but especially to the fathers today. Men's impulses and visual often draws us into sinful practices that are hard to break free. We have the forgiveness of sins offered by Christ, yes, but we need a band of brothers to journey together to get out of the sinful lifestyle that will take you and me captive. Stop living in sin by journeying together with band of brothers. And finally, I want to encourage the fathers to take leadership in guiding your family to come back to the in-person corporate worship. When one man steps up in courage, he inspires others to do likewise. I want to invite you to come back to our spiritual home as we continue to worship God together. My final exhortation to you is not so much exhortation, but it's really pointing you to the source. So help me, God. So help me, God. In many of the swearing-in of the officials, they will read their job descriptions, their visions, their desires, their goals, and usually if they're Christians or if they mean it, towards the end, they will say, so help me, God. But as men, as fathers, we don't always love that phrase because we thought that we can do it all alone. So today in my departing uh, 
message, ending this message, I just want to remind you and myself as a father, so help me, God. So help me, God. Let's pray together. Lord, indeed, help us. Help us to be who you want us to be and teach us to know how to walk with you. Lord, we are often tempted. We are often impulsive. Our eyes often betray us and dilute and weaken the resistance that has been building up over years of Bible study and prayer life and journeying together. Lord, we admit that. It is so easy for us to give in to sensual pleasure. Lord Jesus, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.